boats, rice, and shelter. This movie has everything from hopping rabbits to big clouds. We watched in this quarter of the world. We are the film fellas. We watch movies that you love, hate, or have never heard of, and then we talk about them. I'm Greg, the bad boy. I'm Nick, and I've watched How I Met Your Mother too much. I'm Caleb, and today I'm drinking a half pint of water. I'm Robbie, and I was a Navy sailor. Let's get into it. Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. Like I said, we are the Film Fellas. This week we watched In This Corner of the World. This was Nick's choice. Nick, tell us a little bit why you picked this movie. Yeah, so when I went on Netflix to choose my movie this week, I went to the anime category because there was a new one coming out, Whiskers Away, and I didn't like it. So I found another one on accident, which was This Corner of the World. And the art style really drew me in because it looked like the old-fashioned character models from, like, the evil salesman or Astro Boy, very rounded models, and I really got into it. And I didn't read what it was about. And then it shocked me halfway through, and I'm like, oh, no. So I thought it'd be a good choice for this week's episode. Nice. Good choice, man. Let's start off with our one-sentence summary. Nick, you pick the order. All right. I'm going to go first and pass it to Caleb. Okay. My one sentence summary is dramatic irony, the movie. Hmm. Like it. So here's my summary then. In the months leading up to 1945, a woman is repeatedly asked by her in laws if she's going to move back to Hiroshima as the audience sweats. (laughs) It's true. That's pretty much what happens. (laughs) That's the movie. Bobby, you can go next. All right. So for my summary, a girl who enjoys art and the picturesque countryside decides to move on the outskirts of Hiroshima right before World War II and the predictable ensues. My one sentence summary this week is a mostly quiet Japanese life or how I learned to stop worrying and love the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. The Navy. Nick, start us off with our summary of the whole movie. Go ahead. All right. So the movie opens up with Shizu, our main character, going on a trip to sell her family's seaweed, as that's her business, downtown Hiroshima. And on her way downtown, she ends up meeting a guy and getting kidnapped by him. And they're in a basket. She puts a kidnapper or a monster to sleep. And she meets a dude in the basket. And then apparently it's a whole story she's fabricating for her sister as enjoyment. Fellas. What a pickup there. Okay. So uh, Shuzu is a very daydreamy sort of person. She always has her head elsewhere. So we sort of zoom by most of her life up to the age of 19. Uh, briefly, we get this uh, little story about her drawing a picture of a nice view uh, for a classmate. And he likes it, but doesn't like it at the same time. It's sort of difficult to remember. Anyway, fellas. So we start off with a childhood friend who grabs the painting and walks away. And our main character then goes back home where she decides that she's going to try and just live her life and 
paint and have fun because she's really carefree until her mom comes in and says, hey, a guy is coming to marry you. And she gets basically married off to a man that she, to her knowledge, she's never met. So she goes and joins this guy's family. It's, you know, it's in a different part of a different city. She's not used to it. It's hard where she's at. And so she doesn't really fit in right away. Phyllis. So she is given to this new family and the, her mother-in-law has a bad leg. So she's swiftly thrust into the role of homemaker and wife and family matriarch. And she goes about doing chores, um, cooking the meals, prepping clothing and stuff for everyone. And just, it, it really becomes a slice of life of first couple year and a half of, of the marriage of, of this of our main character and her new husband and their family and their trials and tribulations, fellas. So it be, they end up seeing how Japan starts rationing their food. And that's where Shizuku ends up beginning her journey is she starts going with the locals and working with the food rationing. Life is sort of hard for her. The sister-in-law comes back to live with her. Her name was Keiko. Keiko. And she has an adorable little girl, Harumi. <laughs> and Keiko does not get along with Shizu and just belittles her the entire time and takes over doing all the chores because Shizuku can't keep up with her. I think, I think it's fellas. I'm forgetting the plot. Anyway, yeah, this keep... movie is choppy. So as soon as we meet Keiko and uh, her daughter, Harumi, uh, basically the family starts to bond together a little bit more as they have to navigate the, the rations uh, and the war that's going on with the Americans. And then... The Americans start bombing the place because we're just skipping about 45 minutes because I honestly don't remember what happens. Her town gets continually aerated and we see all this cute animation that we've been seeing for the past hour is now spent on World War II depictions. So yay. Uh, We see her family make a bomb shelter and continually hide in it and fellas. So the bomb shelter has now been made and... The family's starting to bond together a little bit better, but during this time, her strengths really come out for Suzu. And that's the fact that she is, although she's kind of flighty, she also has a lot of heart and she can bring up people's spirits. So she does that for the little girl who's, you know, stressed out, all the stuff is happening. And she's like, hey, you know, we can draw things. And so she goes outside and she decides that she's going to sketch a picture of the ocean. And then the military police come by, grab her notebook, and think that she's a spy because she's sketching very detailed diagrams of the ships at sea. And so she goes inside the house, and she thinks that they're all going to be mad at her because the MPs are yelling, saying, like, she must be a spy, and you got to take care of her, blah, blah. And as they leave, everybody in her family starts laughing because they think it's, you know, it's ridiculous the MPs thought because, you know, she wouldn't hurt a fly. How could she possibly be a spy? Tell us. So we start getting more and more scenes of rationing and family houses getting torn down to be used for the war effort and people having to move in together and just really bond and how hard life is really stretching their budget. Uh, We get a fun scene where ants are raiding their sugar supply and that try to save it, they put it in uh, some water in a bowl, but it tips over and it spills into the water. So the Suzu's 
mother-in-law hands her some money and says, go get some at the black market. So she goes to the black market and they're like, why are we even rationing? There's stuff everywhere, but it's crazy expensive. And on her way home, she gets lost and she finds herself in this empty street full of sweet smelling ladies. One is eventually befriends her and gives her directions home. Bella's. When she gets home, she gets a letter and finds out that her brother died in the Navy. So she ends up going back to Hiroshima, being with her family for a bit. And the only fragment of her brother that they had left was a rock. And her sister, being a little younger, ends up screaming that that's his brain. That's the only thing she could fathom. So she's in Hiroshima grieving. She ends up coming back and is really depressed, having a hard time being with her husband, Shusaku. And then out of nowhere, her childhood friend, Mizuhare, comes in. And he was also in the Navy. And he starts hitting on her. Her husband doesn't like that. But he gives her time to go talk to him. And he ends up making an advancement on her. And she rejects him and starts crying. And she realizes that she actually really loves her husband that she's with. Even though she waited her whole life for Mizuhara to come and take her away. And he was fine with it because he thought that since she was married away, that she was like trapped in a family that she didn't want to be a part of. So he gets sent on her way and he leaves her with a last thought of, when you think of me, smile. Don't think about me as a sailor. Fellas. So after that, a really sort of emotionally deep scene, we get a few more scenes of uh, Suzu and Shuzaku. Uh, bonding as husband and wife and sort of going back and forth about, you know, Shuzaku essentially forced her to marry him, but over time she has grown to uh, appreciate him as a, as a husband and just as a life partner. Fellas. So uh, moving on to later on in that year, so Suzu, uh, her husband actually is somebody that she knew from when she was younger. In the opening story to the show, um, the boy that she had met that was kidnapped with her with the monster that grabbed her was actually her husband. And he tells her this because she doesn't remember really who he is. And so he te- he's like, no, no, I, you know, I know you. And even if you don't remember me, that's okay. And the reason that he sent her to go to her old friend is because he was worried that because he forced her to marry him, that maybe she was truly in love with him. But now that that's been moved past, she really starts to focus in on the family and helping out. Her sister-in-law starts getting along with her. They start getting uh, really into the way the family life's going to work. As the war continues, the grandfather or her father-in-law continually uh, has to go out and go to the ships and then come back and he's getting bombarded with bombs and he gets sent to a hospital because he's unconscious because he gets blown up. He's okay. He's in a coma for about, uh, he said, about a month or two. And so they all go down there as a group to go see him. And her sister-in-law is taking her niece to try and take them over to her husband's family to try and protect her because of all the bombings going on. While they're doing this, the line is way too long. So she says, here, take her and go, you know, go play with, or with her grandpa. And they take off. So Suzu and Harumi go to the hospital to visit the father-in-law. 
they find out that he's okay. He's not dead. He's just been in a coma, like Ravi said. So when they leave, Harumi is a big fan of the the battleships in the sea. Says, "Oh, let's go over there. I want to see the stuff." And there's the walls along the along the the border of the sea, and they keep not being able to see. And they're like, "What about here? Nope, you can't see over here. What about here? No, you can't see over here." And then there's an air raid, and um, all these bombs start dropping. There's a there's this split decision. She's like, "What am I gonna do?" Luckily, they're okay. And in the aftermath, they find this hole in the wall that was made by one of the bombs. And they're like, oh, we can see the ships finally. It's just this destroyed ship in the in the bay. And these these guys come by and say, hey, are you guys okay? And they're like, yeah, we're fine. And they're like, be careful. The unexploded bombs can still go off. And it clicks with Susan. They're like, there's an unexploded bomb right there. What am I going to do? And then, <laughs> fellas. <laughs> So there's an amazingly drawn sequence to show the audience that Harumi was sadly blown up. And the next scene is Suzu wakes up in her family's house. She is battered. Her right arm is missing. And she wakes up next to her grandfather. And Keiko comes in screaming and yelling that Suzu killed Harumi. And this sends Shuzu in a, a horrible mental spire as it goes for the rest of the show, fellas. Okay, so if I have this right, next little while is spent uh, a lot on Suzu's recovery. She is uh, determined to be helpful to her in-laws who are now relying on her mother-in-law and Keiko for a lot of the, the duties as she's still recovering from losing her hand. Meanwhile, she's very uncertain of uh, what she wants to do, whether she wants to move back to be with her family in Hiroshima or stay with her in-laws. There's this one scene where her and her husband fight about this and uh, in, in the trenches, as it were, and he you know, is very hysterical because they're getting bombed. But he's like, do, do you, if you want to go, then just go. And she has no idea what she wants to do. But eventually, she figures out she does want to stay and, uh, and be with her husband and her in-laws, fellas. And so she does decide that she wants to stay with her family and not move back to Hiroshima. So she decides that she's going to stay here. Unfortunately, this is the moment where a big, bright flash of light shines through the windows. And the smoke cloud comes up. And you see the mushroom cloud. And Hiroshima has been bombed. Uh, they're far enough away that they don't see any, they don't have the immediate flash and they also don't have the immediate sonic boom. There's a solid like minute that goes by before all of a sudden it feels like there's an earthquake. So Hiroshima is now gone. Um, pieces of buildings have been littered all over the place. Uh, the tree in their backyard now has a siding glass or a siding door into it. And obviously because Suzu's family was in Hiroshima, they unfortunately were also caught in the blast. And so at this point, she doesn't know if any of them are alive. Um, everybody is wondering who everybody else is. Nobody can recognize anybody. Um, it's hard to recognize who the survivors are. And so through this struggle, she starts to lose hope again. So just as she starts to get out of her depression spiral, this happens to try and send her back down. And then um, she finds out that actually her sister is still alive. And so her sister comes to stay with her 
and she realizes that her sister has the symptoms of radiation poison. Um, although they wouldn't know exactly what it is at the time, probably, um, her sister is dying. Bella. So then we start getting into the aftermath of it. We, there's a scene where there's this kid that looks very much like Harumi, who is with another woman who got her arm blown off. And they're just in this, this crater. And the caretaker is sick and like dying and eventually dies. And this little kid is just left by themselves uh, and starts just getting dirtier and grosser. And eventually the kid wanders into the city and sushi rolls onto the ground and she runs and grabs it. And she's like, nah. and they're like, oh, it's okay. You can eat it. And it's Suzu and her husband. And she feels for this kid. She's like, I need to, we need to take this kid in and care for this, this orphaned child, uh, fellas. So they take the child back with them to their house and they're at a big table. There's all of Shizu's extended family from her father's side. And the kid ends up having lice on them. So they all panic and like, oh no, we have to go steam all our clothes. And then it pans out to their house and everyone starts turning the lights on for the first time in a while. Because if they had their lights on before, that was a signal for air raids. And the, end, the ending song starts playing. So I personally really enjoyed this movie. I thought the atmosphere of it was really interesting. And, and throughout my schooling, when we talked about World War II and like what happened to Japan, we only talk about the big like issues, the big things we did, like Pearl Harbor, um, the battles of like Okinawa, and also I think that was a battle. My history's been it's been a while, and then we talk about the atomic bombs and them surrendering. We I've never really taken a class where they went in depth of like what happens to a country when they're under so much like military pressure. And it was, for me, it was very fascinating to see just the rashing that went down, how everyday life has changed when that happens. Because in the U.S., we, so far, we haven't been the, what's it called, the victim mm -hmm. of, like, onslaughts of bombings. I just found yeah, that really, it, it really cool. really doesn't glamorize war. Like, American media kind of glamorizes World War II because we came in and we were the heroes. Uh, but this movie is a lot more about and even not just the big cities, but the smaller communities, how everyone was affected. And like you said, the rationings and the constant air raids. There's a good 20 minute chunk of this movie where it's just air raid after air raid after air raid. Uh, there was three air raids this day. There was none this day. There was one this day and so on and so on. It just became a regular thing. Mm -hmm. And that scene where uh, Harumi is in the bomb shelter and she just says, I'm so tired of alarms with the air raid alarm. Like that is, that is gut punching right there. Like that is the moment where you instantly sink in and you're like, Oh man, I did not learn about this in school. <sighs> it was crazy. The normalization of, or how quickly they got adjusted to the climate of just, mm -hmm. There's a constant fear of dying, but yet they're just like, they don't. So it's just them progressing through life with this mild annoyance going on. I want to hear Robbie's takes on this because he is well, ex-Navy. Well, <laughs> yes. Um, if my Robbie has sailed the seven seas. 
<laughs> Not Antarctic. Oh, nope. <laughs> Only two, three. Um, what, what was the Atlantic? Atlantic? Uh, no. Uh, Baltic, um, Mediterranean, Atlantic. Mm. Wow. Um, I guess it's not an ocean, not a sea. But, <laughs> uh, Pacific. <laughs> what I really liked about this was the fact that, like you said, it takes a, it doesn't take a glamorous view of war. And at the same time, instead of hammering home old tropes we've seen all the time, it focuses in on the lives of these people living on the outskirts of the town. Um, they are tangentially involved with the Navy and with the military, but so was everybody else at that time period. But by focusing in on this slice of life or this one particular girl and her life surrounding this time, we're able to really internalize what's going on without it being our defense is jumping up. Like if it was more overt, um, our, you know, people's defense or might not read the same way, but as it is, we're able to really empathize with the characters in a way that a lot of other depictions of World War II sometimes don't do. So I like that. Uh, the, the pacing and the style worked great for it. I think that at the time, because there were a lot of raids going on, um, it, it would definitely become something where people would have to see it over and over again, and they would start to become desensitized just because it's just the constant pressure, and people have to be flexible because when these things happen in order to survive, because otherwise they, they just start breaking down. And you see that in the show that they start becoming, you know, they start, start losing their charm. They start losing their, their veneers, basically, as it gets worse and worse. And they become more life, lifeless almost to the point yeah, where... Yeah, you really got to pay attention during this movie because mm -hmm. if you look away for a second, you miss an entire time jump. They jump times just seems at random, but it's really the important parts. But it's, it's not... Like, oh, here's every couple of months. It's here's May 14th, and then here's uh, January 16th, and then here's August now, and then here's February. And it's, it's just all over the place. But you really got to pay attention to the time jumps and what's going on. Yeah, they mostly go like in, they go linear, right? Like they don't yeah, jump back in time, I don't think. Yeah, I think yes. it's chronological all the way through. Yeah. It yeah, that's more and more stressful. And then you get to goes. the end where, yeah, it gets it becomes the ticking clock of like, oh man, we are in nineteen forty-five. When mm -hmm. is this gonna go down? When is the jump gonna happen? Oh god, here's the next thing. Is the next scene gonna be it? Oh, it's it's pretty intense. I, I literally, when I was watching this movie, I had to walk away a couple times. Like every time she went back to Hiroshima, I just like <laughs> had to take a mental break because I'm like, please don't let this happen how I think it's going to happen, which it didn't, thankfully. Yeah. But just yeah. the dramatic irony the entire time through the movie from looking at it in a perspective where you know the exact date when this catastrophic event is going to happen is stress-inducing, to say the least. That's funny. For me, I forgot the exact date. I knew it was 1945, and I knew it was uh, around that time, but I kept being like, is this the exact date? Uh, it's getting closer. Is this what is what exactly is this gonna happen? Especially when the day she was heading back to Hiroshima was the exact day where it happened, and yeah, I was and just she ended like up not going because twist of fate. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think and, I think it was handled very well, where it is just this blinding flash, and everyone's like, "What is this?" And then, like Robbie said, like a minute later, there's a, and everything starts shaking and going crazy. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, just a very human moment as well. Like it doesn't go down like a disaster movie. Like exactly. they're just doing life, and then the flash happens. You know, there's not like a dog who's like, "Run, get out while you can," or you know, whatever. Is yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Robbie. It seems that, because um, one of my favorite parts of this is what they don't show. They, it's a very emotional movie, and one of the ways they do that is by using what you already know. Like, we don't need a long, protracted look at the mushroom cloud. We don't need to see the, you know, the, the flash of light and the burning fires or the people's bodies. We can just see the aftermath. And because it trusts the audience, it knows that we're intelligent. So the audience knows what happened. So instead, it just focuses in on those emotional parts instead of, like you said, like a disaster movie where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, we have to have all this pop and circumstance. No, this is about the characters. It's about their lives. And we're going to stick that way all the way through. I really liked how, like, with the bomb going off, just it's another day and age. So it takes a while for the information to travel. So everyone's speculating at first, like, oh, I heard it was a new bomb. I heard some explosion happen on an accident, and no one knows what's really going on. And then you start seeing the people who were in the accident. At one point, one of Shizu's friends has runs like the dispensary where they give out the rations. And outside is a person who's in the explosion, skin melted, completely like covered in soot, ash, just a black like silhouette of a person sitting out front. And later on, she finds out that that was her son who walked all the way from Hiroshima. And like, I'm assuming in a desperate attempt to like find her because he's so disoriented and it's like decaying. Yeah. And just the emotional impact it had on a community who had to hear it in stages mm-hmm. was like really shocking for me. It, it's hard to, it's hard to remember sometimes just how, dependent we are on the level of communication that we have and like our instantaneous news and stuff like that in years past you couldn't do that it it would take weeks months to find out sometimes if something happened to a loved one you would have someone you'd have like a brother or a son and they would die overseas and you'd find out two months later when they finally got all the stuff together to come to your house and for those two months you didn't know what was going on and so it definitely touches on that because, you know, she didn't know that it was her son. But also all these people wandering around trying to find loved ones and like two different people grab her thinking like, are you, are you this, are you, you know, are you my daughter? Oh, you're not my daughter. And they, they keep searching. And I think that's probably one of the most tear jerking movement or moments of the entire movie is just that scene in its entirety. Yeah, that hurt. And just the overall desperation of please be alive as the people are feeling whenever they go up to people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which when she goes back to Hiroshima, Hiroshima, um, and she finds that her sister is alive, but she's sick and she's ill. And I'm like, Oh man, she definitely has radiation poisoning. Uh, but they don't really allude to it right away until she grabs her wrist. And there's these lesions and you're like, Oh, this is going to be a bad time for her. And it was crazy how she had to find out about both her mother and father dying from her sister. And that was like a couple weeks after the incident. Yeah. 
I was going to say, Rabbi was talking about communication. Even they relied on the radio to tell them what was going on when, like, what bombings were happening. And then the radio goes away, and they're like, we have nothing. (sighs) Yep. They'd be completely in the dark for the entire time. And the other thing is, like, again, like, we know that it's radiation poisoning. But back then, they would they would have no clue what this is. Like, is it a chemical weapon? Is it a biological weapon? Are they just sick? Like, what's going on? And so that that's one of the things. So when she's like, hey, you know, I'm not going to get better, even though we as the audience know, unfortunately, that's not going to happen, they still are trying to cling on to that hope, which also, again, it just that, like Nick saying for dramatic irony purposes, like, we know what's going on, even if the characters don't. And that makes it resonate even more with us. Going on with the radiation, like even at the end, the kid they get, he was there at the initial impact. So even though like it seems like the kid's going to have a nice life with a new family, there's still like a melancholy or like desperate feeling I had at the end because he was in Hiroshima when it happened. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the amount of radiation anyone in that time was like given just being there, like they even go to the actual bomb site like two weeks after it like finished, they're still infecting themselves and they don't understand what's going on. It had literally never happened before. Yes. Nobody knew what this was. It was like at Chernobyl when Chernobyl melted down and people went out to go see it. Um, There's a really good uh, HBO series on it. Um, And like for for real, people were like, oh, cool. It's really bright and shining. And everybody took their kids to go out and play and go watch it because it looked interesting because it hadn't happened. With hindsight, we can be like, oh, no, no, no. Because all those pieces, no, no, no. all the pieces that had fallen into the, the tree, for example, that's radioactive. Like everything that they touched, the papers they were picking up off the ground, all that stuff would be poisoning. So that, that's also kind of the, the thing in the back of my mind. So I'm happy that it showed kind of that montage of what happened with the kids so it wasn't as sad as it could have been. Because I was like, oh no, like this is, this is bad across for all these main characters involved. And at the same token, it's a slice of life movie. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't get into the the real gore of it, you know? There weren't like the um Robbie, what's it called? The radiation like uh, lesions. Lesions, uh, yeah, like the, the pustules and stuff. Yeah, lesions, happened. boils, pustules. Yeah, the worst you see is a little bit on her sister, but Ultimately, it's about people just surviving and living and going on. Yeah, it's, a, it's more of a character study than anything else. Or it's more of like an event that happens through her eyes. And uh, what really stood out to me was that like, the movie you could very easily split in half. Like the first hour is just all introduction and slice of life. The second I was hour. I say the first part of the movie is not sad. It's right. Uh, the first, it's just first regular. part of the movie <laughs> is just like not so cohesive and difficult to follow because it's, it happens through the eyes of Suzu, who describes herself as a daydreamer. But like as soon as the bombs hit, the movie becomes very coherent and very linear, and you can definitely see the causality from scene to scene. And there was going to be something that I brought up uh, earlier because is very difficult to follow for me 
uh, going from scene to scene in the first hour, but the second hour, it you see what they've been doing this whole time. And there's that scene like towards the end where uh, Susie's crying on on uh, her on the hill on the fire property, and she just asks, "Why couldn't I have died a daydreamer?" I was like, "Oh yeah, wow." Mm-hmm. We've been going in pretty sequential order for like a half hour. And they really yeah. showed like the development of her character through the art style. Like it begins very pastel, very like beautiful paintings. There's a scene where she's with her uh, childhood friend Mizuhara and she draws the ocean as rabbits and just he walks away as part of the painting. And yeah. she heads to this new place and it goes to like what we see the rest of the movie, more harder colors in certain areas, jagged edges. And then the big point where I thought it switched was the first air raid where she's outside. And if you look up all the like anti-aircraft artillery are puffing out clouds of pastel of like, yeah. like chalk looking. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the movie, every sequential bombing turns more realistic and more, like you see the devastation of it instead of it to her looking at it as a beautiful thing. I wanted to bring that up and- because she's such a daydreamer and she's always getting distracted in her own things. There's a lot more fantastical elements that happen in the movie that are shown throughout the art, like the rabbits jumping. And um, even the first bombing where you're talking about the puffs of smoke, where the bombs hit are like splashes of paint because that's just kind of how she sees the world. But as soon as she loses her arm, there's the last sequence that's kind of hand-drawn, uh, black and white. Mm-hmm. And then that style goes away. There's no more like artistic visualization until the very, very end when life starts to get back to normal and she can really start being who she is again. But there's a chunk of time where it stops getting artistic and it, really is here is the real real business i just i love the fact that not just the art style but the color palette um the color palette of the story is so bright and vibrant and then as it gets more realistic and it it starts to drain out that color and you get small bits here and there where she starts to, to daydream or think about the past, and you'll see little things happen. Like when there was the, um, the flowers above the girl's head when she got lost. She could smell, it smelled really sweet. And so all of a sudden, we saw pastel flowers for the first time in like 25 minutes. And it's just that one little scene because it's somebody who showed her kindness. And so that type of storytelling through visual medium is why I love animations. And the more uh, obvious use of animation is like as soon as the bombs start hitting, the way that the animation unravels in the same way that Suzu's life is sort of unraveling and it becomes colorless and void. Like you were talking about, Robbie, it really helps you follow along with the emotional journey because that is definitely the focus. Mm-hmm. Like I went into this very ignorant about what it was going to be as every first time viewer this is gonna hopefully be it is an emotional roller coaster because it looks that's why i think the animation style is amazing because it looks so sweet and innocent Mm -hmm. but just the dramatic irony overhead of it 
makes this like amazing slice of life animation be this daunting task in front of you of just everything's going to go south, even though it looks happy-go-lucky at first. So, yeah, can we talk about uh, the beginning of the film? There's a lot of things that we kind of glossed over um, from her childhood that are really interesting. So at the very beginning, on her way to sell the seaweed that her family made, uh, I noticed there's an instrumental version of Oh Come All Ye Faithful that I wasn't expecting. I noticed that too. I was wondering. Yeah. Uh, it turns out it was around Christmas times. So well, that kind of makes sense. But I thought that was mm-hmm. a very interesting choice for the opening of this film, which was at the time 1930s, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to expand on that. All right. Yeah, I'll explain on it. It shows how, at this point, we weren't enemies with the U.S. It was the beginning of it, and that's like a classic Christmas song. Um, and Christmas, like the whole ornaments and everything came mostly from the U.S. making that into a huge holiday. Mm-hmm. And having them have that as like one of the songs they're playing around the town really shows how they didn't hate us yet. Like later on, they talk about how they're playing jazz and it's the enemy's music. Mm-hmm. At that point, it was just music that anyone could use. It was a... Uh... That part almost made me Google, like, when did Japan start celebrating Christmas? I was very con- very curious. Uh, actually, maybe I'll look that up now. About when we uh, try to me colonize too, yeah. them. I hadn't, uh, I wasn't sure when that kind of westernization had happened. Because I knew it was definitely way more after World War II, after we had uh, occupied them, but I didn't know it was before that. The, the 1910s, 1920s, um, there was a big movement for modernization, which was just basically adopting Western customs. So um, they kind of alluded to that when they have that pink dress and the pink hat in, uh, for the sister-in-law that owned that, those clothes. The, te- the teens and the 20s was a big kind of mixing pot, and the 30s was that when that really kind of blew up. And so you started getting like flapper dresses and stuff and styles. Yeah, the emperor had stopped their isolationist policy, right? I believe He's like, we're so. going to be more global. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But there was definitely a push um, before, before World War II and after World War I, there was a push for a more Western style of dress and stuff mm-hmm. later on. So Christmas music and stuff, it's just popular. It's kind of like how we here would be like, oh, yeah, you know, let's bring a little bit of this in here. Fun fact, uh, during Christmas in Japan, they all get KFC or fried chicken as like the celebratory dish instead of the U.S. like ham or duck. Nice. That's our Western influence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I think this movie could have only been an anime, in my opinion. Hmm. It would have been very different if it was live action. I would not. It wouldn't have had as much impact, I think, just because it's so much like we've already said, it's so much more impactful and emotional to have it be animated to be able to play with what with you know what's going on visually mm-hmm. rather than just have it be live action yeah i'd buy that i don't know if i would have like wanted to watch it if it was a, a live action version if it was good you know i think you could still have the same emotional impact but i think well because it was a, it was a manga first so mm-hmm. 
it makes sense that it was adapted. And apparently the manga is much more detailed because, you know, you have more time because you have more books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fun fact, I found out that this movie was crowdfunded Ooh. and they, they raised over their goals, which is why you get some really good detailed animation. Cause they're like, Oh, Hey, we have more money. Let's, let's put it back into the movie. Yeah. I was very interested in how the director, Susano Katabuchi, he's known for being a writer instead of a uh, director. So he did, he wrote uh, screenplays like um, this uh, Princess Arietti and for the anime Black Lagoon, which are two completely different categories of shows or movies, depending on which one you're thinking, talking about. And then to do a complete 180 in their career to do a thought-provoking movie like this really stands out to me. And I'm, I hope they do more like this, in a way. But not so depressing. I want a little bit more uplifting. <laughs> I would like that, too. So I'll, help me formulate this question. So it does make the U.S. look like the bad guys. But if the roles were divert, reversed... Like, if the Japanese kept bombing us, like, they don't really mention their success at Pearl Harbor. If mm. they show, like, that, like, we always see in media, or, like, the Japanese were horrible people immediately. Yes. As mm-hmm. we look at this, and if you don't know the history of it, they're like, holy crap, the U.S. is awful. But the roles would have been reversed and just as bad. I disagree with your thesis because it doesn't necessarily demonize the Americans. Uh, Yes, we're at war. Yes, there is an enemy, but it doesn't ever really show our side as like monsters or uh, there's no propaganda posters like we had caricaturing them. I I think this is more about their life. They weren't affected by the uh, international conflict so much as they were just trying to live their life. Uh, The war came to them, but it wasn't, they didn't hate America so much as it's a bummer that they're getting attacked, you know? Mm -hmm. But the war didn't come to them though. They went to Pearl Harbor because they're like, it's our time to gain land again, gain a big, no, I mean, the the main characters of the movie yes the war came to them literally came to them Mm, in a big way yeah so i don't think because it's from their perspective i don't think it's anti-american or anything i think it's just yeah yeah. yeah i was just thinking um while watching this especially when they did the fire bombs that Mm. that's so horrendous that it's just going for the civilians even though that was also happening in Germany, London, France, all those places. But I don't know, just the impact it had on me was just, it made me hate the way the U.S. did their military things. Or, but if you look at it, the, if the roles were diverse, if they, the Japanese had the opportunity, they would have done just the same to us. We just came with a bigger, bigger stick. It's a pretty big stick there, if I'm honest. Yeah, glad I, I stumbled do see what this. you mean. I do want to ask Robbie, because um, we weren't the only ones in Japan. I mean, yeah, we were doing the majority of the fighting, but... Weren't they feuding a little bit with China at this time? 
<laughs> that is a complicated question, Nick. <laughs> I, I'm so ignorant on They've been so much of with China history. for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even now. <laughs> Fun fact: um, the area Rin was in was the red light district. She turned into a streetwalker. Yes, I was going to bring yeah. that up. Uh, that's interesting. I was watching this review about this actually, and they said Rin or Lin, depending on which uh, translation you saw. And mm-hmm. my translation was Lin. Oh. Really? My yeah. translation was Reen. Yeah, Were Reen. you watching it in English or? I was watching Japanese? it in English with subtitles. I was watching it in Japanese with subtitles, and it was Lin. See, I watched uh-huh. it in English first. Just because um, I really liked one of the voice actors who played uh, Suzu's husband. Mm-hmm. And you mean Natsu from Fairy Tale? Yes. <laughs> Natsu and many other things. Yes. He. Uh, so I started watching it with that, and then when I rewatched it, I watched it um, half in English because my dad was sitting with me, and then the other half in Japanese with English subs. And one of the things that really stuck with me was the different translations on the songs. Mm. Uh, in English, they even have subtitles on the dub for one of the songs when it's the Japanese sub t- subtitles, and they don't match up like at all. Mm. And then again, with generally, the, you kind of have because Japan is such a hard Japanese is a hard language to translate into English because of the different parts of speech and everything. Sentences are backwards. Their sentences are different than ours, yes. That's great. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, they're backwards. And you well, have to... Latin And you also have to way. match, you know, lip flap, which is a whole other situation. So you have mm-hmm. to convey the meaning in a way that we understand while matching the lip flap. And it's a whole... Dubbing anime is a whole art that, when done well, is really mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah. Like Cowboy Bebop and... The first season in Naruto, and then a little bit downhill. <laughs> Nick, you feel like we covered guys. the topic? Can you Would you like to rebring it up? I think it covered it enough, but I wanted to hear a little bit on Robbie since he was in the military. Yeah. Just um. So a little short synopsis of my topic was: I felt like looking at this, it made the U.S.'s military tactics seem very aggressive and like to me a little bit disturbing, like when they did the fire bombs and just the constant air raids. But I do understand that if the roles were reversed, like if the Japanese had the ability, they would have done the same to us. But how is your view on the way the U.S. military was portrayed in this movie? Honestly, when you're not looking at a Hollywood film, looking at things at a more realistic standpoint, um, a lot of war is not good, not pretty. Um, The tactics were aggressive. uh, And so... I think that it was rather true. You would have the air raid, you would go over, you would drop as many bombs as possible. Um, the defense to it would be, oh, well, you know, that was a port town, so they'd be attacking an area where you're supposed to. Because there is, there are um, codes of conduct, for example, like, you know, they, they can't think, or they shouldn't be thinking to themselves, like, okay, where's the nearest school? I can go bomb that. So they'd be like, okay, we're going to bomb this area because it's a high Navy population etc etc but as far as like the different tactics go um is one thing that like in movies and stuff when they make a very clear-cut good and bad guy that's where that can kind of come in but um 
war is not very pretty or a good thing. So I don't think they made it over aggressive at all. If anything, I think it was more realistic. Um, you could look at it on the other foot if you wanted to see, um, for example, like what happened in Britain during World War II when them, with uh, the bombings there as well. And so it was a similar type of thing. So that's how air raids work, is you want to try and basically floor every building that you're trying to attack, and you just do it over and over and over and over again to wear the, person, the enemy down. So There are still buildings um, in England with shell damage on them. You can like go there today and see... Shelled buildings, yeah. messed up. So I, yeah. So I don't think it was over aggressive at all. I think it was very realistic. Right, sweet, thank you. <laughs> last week's movie, War as Hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fellas, there's a delightful scene at the very beginning of this movie where uh, Suzu, her brother, and her sister and her whole family are going to go see her grandma. And uh, the tide rolls back so they get to walk across the sea to where her grandma lives. And they're going to bring her a watermelon. And mm-hmm. the brother's like, very serious. He's like, I'm going to carry this watermelon. We're going to go see grandma. And uh, the two sisters are younger and they're more playful. And they're like, I'm going to carry the watermelon. And then they show up at the grandma's house all covered in mud. Uh, and then they wash them off. And the grandma has made new kimonos for everyone. And they sit and they have their watermelon. And it's delightful. And then at one point... Suzu is by herself while everyone else is in the, the dining area. And then this little kid just comes out of the ceiling, <laughs> comes down and starts eating their watermelon rind. And they're like, uh, do, you want, do you want the watermelon? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Suzu brings her some watermelon. And at this point, you're like, is Ted, because the whole kidnapping monster thing could have also just been in her head in a story she was telling to her sister. But then we find out later, when she's an adult and she gets lost coming home from the black market, that she runs into the same girl who is now a prostitute. Turns out she's making some pretty good money. Uh, she had a hard life. She was she was an urgent living in the in the ceiling. So yeah, that's just I like. The yeah, scene it was. Where <laughs> it was ruined though because later after the same air raid that killed Harumi. Uh, two soldiers are sitting together talking about how the red light district of that area was Uh-oh. destroyed. Yeah, red light just get ruined by the end of this movie. Rin was at least <laughs> supporting herself. And then she Yeah, dies. she was one of the sweet-smelling ladies, you know? She mm-hmm. seemed to be happy, although she does say, don't come back here. Like this, yeah. this isn't for you, kid. She did get to dress nice and have. There was a lot of waiters. soldiers coming through, so yeah, she she knew about sweets and the finer things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably didn't have to deal with rationing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I feel like the soldiers would slip her meal um, tickets like her sister. The but but to to answer your question about the whether or not she it was in her head, um, I think. The coming out of the ceiling was her kind of half asleep and dreaming, but she most definitely was a child eating the, the watermelon. So when she woke up and walked over to her, she just said, was like, oh, you must be the fairy in the ceiling. And this girl's like, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. The grandmother mentions that. Like, yeah, there's an urchin kid that comes around. They don't have much, so we, we just let her go about her business. Yeah. Speaking of the grandmother great character loving 
mm-hmm. old Japanese grandmother gives the best advice. Fellas, you know what I learned from this movie? What? On your wedding day, you might be asked, <laughs> did you bring an umbrella? And you must say, I brought a new umbrella. I brought a new one. And if he says, can I open it? You must say yes. And you know what that means? Time to Persimmons. Fuck. <laughs> Persimmons. Persimmons off the tree. That is the. That is exactly what Ted meant. I thought that was such a good like bait that she actually brought an umbrella and then he yeah. used it to grab persimmons. I'm like, is this a tradition? Ride <laughs> persimmons. I love it. That has to be one of my favorite scenes at the beginning because it was just. I was like, oh, okay, we're we're gonna see this. And I was like, that was clever. That was good. right before that. My one of my favorite scenes that actually made me laugh out loud is uh, her grandmother is like, oh, you're getting married. I made this for you when you were a kid. It's a marriage kimono. And they're in the middle of the ceremony. And Susan's like, oh, no, I'm wearing my traveling clothes over my kimono and starts stripping off her traveling clothes. And everyone's like, don't strip in the middle of the ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> I loved, like, even throughout this, um, the, the movie and how, like, it gets dark, there are amazing moments of real joy and human be, them being human especially um even at like right when she's shizu loses her arm and harumi dies her sister comes to visit and she gets out of the house for the first time and is walking with her and starts teasing her about how a navy captain was uh, hitting on her and that she liked her and as they did they mirrored a scene from back when she visited hiroshima when she had all her arms and it just showed how family connection even throughout these hard yeah both of them (laughs) even throughout this um these hard times (laughs) there's still joy to be found in the world yeah Yeah, there's plenty of moments of lovely human compassion it's nice to see so fellas i'd like to talk about the title of the film yeah which as we all know is in this corner of the world i think that it both represents her life up on this top of this mountain little little village area in this corner of the world where they are experiencing their own things. I also think that it references what's going on in her head in this corner of the world, how she's perceiving everything, which is why there's those little artistic flourishes for a while. And then it's not that because this movie is definitely from her perspective. Um, and it just kind of talks about different, yeah. Life's in different cities in in her head, and what do you guys think about that? Mm-hmm. I, I think we've like this whole time we've been bringing up the phrase "slice of life" quite a lot, and that is the best way to describe it because it is just in this corner of the world. This is her slice of life, and this is what happens to her. Um, so, like you know, stuff does happen in this movie. However, it's really more just living life and just then the year is sort of it's a big part of that but i don't know my big takeaways are more of like how i felt about the movie rather than you know what i saw yeah for me i felt felt the title was like almost like showing how unrepresented this side of the story is and like in this corner of the world at this time this is what the people had to deal with to watch this and realize the struggles people went through. Exactly. It's not even, this is what 
Japan as a whole is dealing with, or this is what the people in Hiroshima or Nagasaki are dealing with. This is what this small community is dealing with, how they are living their life in this corner of the world. Mm -hmm. It's a very apt title. Which is what I like about the show. Like I said, it's because it's so focused on her perspective, it's not making a broad general statement rather than you know, saying like, oh, well, you know, this is, this is how everyone in Japan is feeling. This is how all these things are going on. And so we see everything in a very tight, tight circle on what she's doing. And so everything is colored through her life and just a snapshot of what she's doing. I have one question. Yeah. So her childhood friend, I'm going to have to go back to his name because it's annoying, Mizuhara. At the end, when she's pushing the car with the lady whose son was who died outside her house, he's looking at a ship. But you look at the ship, and the ship's destroyed. Do you think he died? Because I believe that he was dead, and she's remind, remembering him as a person because he's he's smiling at the ship. Yeah, I think so. Isn't that the part where, uh, like, his voice echoes like when you think of me? Smile. Don't think of yeah. me as a sailor. So, yeah, I think so. Yeah, the, the ship that they said sank was the ship that he was stationed on, which is, the, which is based on a real ship that sank in uh, that battle. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I think he's dead. I like to think that that was another moment where she's regaining her sense of wonder because the ship comes out of the water, mm-hmm. becomes new, and starts floating off into the rabbits. Exactly, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. She finally can become more of herself again. Um, one final point I want to make before we wrap this up is the building that's still standing in Hiroshima. You see it in the opening credits. It's this amazing blue, like dome like shape. And at the end, it's the only building in the area that's still standing. Uh, that was ground zero because the bomb exploded right above it. Cause buildings what? are meant to take weight down so that they don't fall. Not from the side. That's where everything else around it is gone. But that structure was meant to, withstand really? force that's, the only oh, that's fascinating i learned that from my dad <laughs> awesome good job nick's dad yeah. <laughs> and it was really cool to see how it opened with that and then it that was the sign that the movie was closing it was yeah opened and closed mm-hmm. the world's not the same as when she was younger but yet life will go on yeah it's kind of how which is why going. i love yeah. the closing of everything is dark and then she finally opens the window and then other people are opening the window because they don't have to have the blackout curtains because the air raids are over so they can finally get back to a semblance of normal, you know? Yeah, that really felt like the end tone of the movie was like, and life goes on. To to which I wrote in my notes, K-Den. It was very abrupt and sort of not satisfying, but you just get like the, the smallest hint that, you know, it's going to be all right. I disagree. There are several scenes after the bomb goes off that, yes, it shows the horrors, but it also shows these people surviving, you know? Mm-hmm. There's the scene where uh, Suzu goes through her life and she has learned to deal with working with one arm and still being part of this, um, still being part of this family unit and 
her husband is like, I work in Hiroshima now. We could move here if you want. She's like, nope, we live in Kure. We don't, like, this is what we've chosen. This is where we're going to be. So it really just shows that you can go back to it. And I think it was a very good final image. And I didn't feel like it was abrupt. I felt very hopeful in my viewing of it. I I was... I was a little sadder than than you were because <laughs> I, I could see it that way. But at the, at the time I was just in general, my, my mood was brought down into a very pensive mode when I was watching it. And so I only got like a, a little bit of uplift towards the end. The saddest part for me was when she had to accept that the war was over. Like she suffered through so much and no matter the struggle, she kept going but then she felt like the people she was depending on gave up on her or gave up on the war. Yeah. She's like, they said we would fight till the end. There are still four of us here. We can still fight. Let's go. Cause it's something that dramatic just being over. It's, it's hard to accept yeah. mm-hmm. being over and they lost. It's, yeah. We're America. Double, What's uh, losing a war. That, that part was really poignant for me for no other reason other than just like seeing the other side of the war. And there's like that, that moment where they have the American flag that's sailing, that's flying over the bay. And this whole time they've been effectively the bad guys. And so you see that. And I was just sort of like, Ooh, this is uncomfy. Yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about. There are scenes where after the Americans come in and occupy, they, there's still the rationing lines, but there's also, you know, these Americans giving out chocolates to the kids and they're like, this is our new normal, but we can continue. She meets up with her sister-in-law in the line and they're like, Oh, we can finally get these rations. What is it? And they taste it. And it looks like they're both going to say it's gross, but they both go, it's amazing. Let's keep, let's keep mm-hmm. at it because we're alive. We survived. We can keep going. At that point they were rationed down to no soy or no salt just bland food for one think that the ending of this was very appropriate um i think that if it was wrapped up in a pretty bow after the series of events we'd witnessed it would be jarring just because like i said i think that this is one of the few depictions of that time period of like the uh, the battle and stuff that deal with it in a mature way that's not just like, oh, and everything's perfect now, but also like gives you the hope of, well, they will continue on to live. They will restructure. So it definitely could have been worse. Um, but I liked, I liked the way they went with it uh, just because it seems more realistic to what would actually happen if someone, you know, if someone was faced with all of that. Because she does go through that sort of, that feeling of betrayal and guilt because she's like, I've lost everything. I've given up all of this for, she thinks, you know, for nothing. And then she kind of, it does do that rather quickly, but I could see that they were trying, you know, for time purposes. So that's the only issue with the pacing I saw was I just thought that they kind of lost that really over really quickly. Yeah. I do agree with you, Robbie, that like the ending does sort of feel like not everything is tied up in a nice little bow because this whole movie is just like it's life and so in life is messy 
And so the ending is just sort of, there's all these scattered pieces that we don't really get to pick up, but we get the sense that, you know, they might. And uh, the people that we've been watching for the past two hours, they, they do go on. And so it, that sort of changes my whole view about this movie, uh, talking about it with you fellas. And so I might, might bring this up when we do Would You Under What Circumstances? Film fellas. Yeah. Let's start with Greg, because I'm going to throw you under the bus. <laughs> would you recommend this and under what circumstances? I would recommend this. I thought this was a very good movie, very well done. Like I said, the art style was beautiful. The story was great. With the caveat that you are aware of what the subject matter is. I think because Nick told us that this is about a woman in Japan during World War II, I knew what to prepare for. So while the ending was impactful, uh, it didn't bring me down as hard because I was prepared. I knew what was coming based on history. So I would say definitely check it out, know what's coming, and prepare yourself mentally and just enjoy the ride. It's, it's really great how the first half, even the first two-thirds maybe, is very slice of life. Like we keep talking about uh, she gets thrown into this situation she's unfamiliar with, with this new family and this new place and her coping and dealing with that while the world is kind of going to hell around her and her just really dealing with that and reconciling with that. And then it gets real bummer at the end. So heads up on that. Mm -hmm. So if you were to have asked me if I would recommend this before we talked about it, I might've said no, because uh, the movie lost me in the first half a couple of times because of the way it views uh, the events through Suzu's perspective. Uh, scenes just sort of happen at random, it seems. And a line of continuity, but it, it is hidden beneath a, a lot of other scenes that sort of don't seem relevant. But then, you know, as we've been talking about it, I feel like I, if you view this movie that it's just life, I think it captures that feeling pretty well. And so, yeah, like Greg, I would recommend this, but with the caveat that uh, you kind of have to know at least the basics of what you're going into. Uh, it is sad and it is a bummer at times, but it's also kind of sweet. Um, so I definitely would recommend this. I think that it is a strong emotional piece. Um, honestly, I don't even think I'd have to caveat it with the fact that you need to know the historical perspective beyond, beyond just what you would normally get through pop culture osmosis, basically. Um, as long as you understand that Yes, we were in a war. Yes, there was the bombings. I don't think it need, you need to have too much background into it because it does such a good, mature job of, the, of touching on the subject matter. I could almost see this as an appropriate primer after reading a chapter of it in history, in the history class. Um, just because it's poignant, it's emotional, but at the same time, it doesn't glamorize and it doesn't gloss over, which I think is very important anytime you're dealing with media involving um, war or politics or any 
world-changing issue, I think it should be dealt with like that. And because of that, I would think that actually, I think this is a good one to start with. I personally recommend this just because I think it's a beautiful movie, but I do the same caveat as if recommending that silent voice. I make sure the person like knows the overall tone of the movie as going into this and seeing like such a happy life get destroyed is a little not great for the psyche. It's sad boy hours. It is sad boy hours. Well, sad boy two hours. Yeah, sad boy two hours. <laughs> that but, should have been my one sentence summary. <laughs> I this movie is for me is quite high up there just because I really enjoyed the tone and the beautiful artwork. So I would definitely say this is like one of the must watches in my repertoire. All right, that was our discussion of in this corner of the world. Our next next week's pick is Caleb. Caleb, what are we watching next week? Okay, guys, uh, it's time for some some more ginger to the wasabi. My pick is Batman: Mask of the Phantasm. Nice. I I saw that it came on Netflix kind of recently, and I'm really excited because actually I haven't seen it. Me either. I hear it's good. I'm pretty excited oh, nope. about this pick Never actually. Not. Oh, we got three. Nick, have you seen it? No. Is it by the same people who did the Son of Batman? Uh, no. It's by the same people that did uh Batman the Animated Series. <gasps> no, I'm excited. So it's it's basically just. Oh no, no, none of us. Yeah, this is good. Because uh, be I've seen quite a bit of the animated series. I haven't seen every episode, but effectively most of it. We grew up on the animated series. It's so good. Yeah. So I can't wait for next week. We can just talk about some Batman because that's my week. Yeah. All right. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening. Join us on all the social medias. Uh, subscribe to our Patreon and all that fake bullshit that we don't actually have yet. Mm. We'll get that soon. <laughs> we'll get that exactly. soon. Exactly. We will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.